It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. Country music. Love it, hate it, refuse to listen to anything released after 1980. However you feel, there is no way to drive across the United States without hearing it somewhere on the radio. Especially now that Lil Nas X has busted open the conversation with a lot of effort and a sly call to Billy Ray Cyrus on who can top the country music charts. I mention Lil Nas X because in a lot of ways he embodies what this episode's guest the historian Peter LaChapelle talks about when he describes country music's tense relationship with the idea of being an outsider. From the very beginning, there is an impulse that can be very egalitarian and can move us towards a society that's more inclusive. And then you also have the potential of just because outsider status itself is kind of a minority viewpoint to start using it to uh, scapegoat other outsiders. In case you were out of the country for the last six months, Lil Nas X is a black queer artist whose song Old Town Road and a remix featuring Billy Ray Cyrus topped the Billboard Hot 100 charts this summer for a record-breaking 19 weeks. Originally, the song was on the country music charts, too. And then Billboard scrubbed it for not being country enough and reignited the controversy over country music, racism, and who exactly gets to use trap beats on their country tracks. To a lot of people, it looked like a genre that celebrates outlaws and outsiders locking the gates against a different kind of outsider. And as our guest, Peter LaChapelle, points out, none of this is new. Well, I mean, the trap beats are, but country music has been used politically pretty much since it was born in Appalachia, from the fusion of Black dance songs and European immigrant folk traditions. And nowhere is this more striking than on the campaign trail, where scores of politicians have used their connections to country music to say, well, a whole lot of sometimes completely contradictory things. In his new book, I'd Fight the World, a political history of old-time hillbilly and country music, Peter LaChapelle lays out how fiddler politicians and politician fans have used country music to variously advocate for the poor and dispossessed, 
to fight for racial justice, to fight against racial justice, to lobby for gun rights. The list goes on. Peter LaChapelle joins us from Las Vegas, where he is a professor at Nevada State College, to talk about the curious political flexibility of country music. Thanks so much for talking to me, Peter. Well, thank you for having me. So there are innumerable ways to talk about how country music has been politicized or is inherently political. But in your book, the focus is on country music in electoral politics, which it turns out is still a massive subject and touches (laughs) on, oh, what, like 200 years of American history (laughs) and all the messy things we've dealt with in that time period from Gilded Age grift and segregation to the culture wars and guns. So to start off... Can you just give us a bird's eye view of how country music has been politicized in that span of time? (laughs) Um, Well, I would say it's about 141 years. And of course, it wasn't called country music 141 years ago. That's sort of how I got the very long subtitle uh, talking about old time hillbilly and country music. But certainly, I think the perception among a lot of the public is that country music is inherently a conservative genre. And and there is perhaps some truth to that. But what I try to do in the book is look at what us historians always do, look at change over time. And, and what I find is that the story is infinitely more complicated and infinitely more interesting than that. Certainly one, one person going against that perception is Senator Glenn Taylor of Idaho. Um, he was an, a senator in the 1940s. He was originally a Democrat, a very, very liberal, or, or I might use the word utopian Democrat. And he um, eventually left the Democratic Party and ran as Henry Wallace's um, left-wing third-party um, vice presidential uh, candidate in 1948. So Henry Wallace kind of challenged. He didn't like Truman, so he challenged him from the left. You know, here's a figure who in a lot of ways was talking about a very liberal or left-wing vision of America. And he was using his singing cowboy image and his various equestrian stunts to call attention to his viewpoints. Yeah, there are all kinds of progressive political figures you talk about who use or even perform country music that definitely go against that stereotype. It does seem like the tide kind of shifts, though, in the 20th century, especially around the time that the civil rights movement takes off with Americans organizing against segregation. There's certainly truth to that. I mean, I think one of the things is you have a lot of these up-and-coming politicians, um, sometimes interestingly enough, taking on the political establishment in often these southern states that's very segregationist and very dominated by uh, the old planters and industrialists and... um, and sometimes to some degree by urban political machines. A lot of people forget about that, but you know there were, there were big political machines in Memphis and in uh, New Orleans that were sometimes very dominant forces in state politics. So you had that, that kind of situation. And then these, these country music politicians come forward and they preach that they're outsiders. And they even several of them you know, opposed the poll tax as part of their... Uh, campaign platform. Um, Not necessarily, though, to try to uh, reach out to African Americans in any way, as we might think, but rather to appeal to poor white voters who saw the poll taxes keeping them out of the power structure. And 
when these politicians get in office, you know, sometimes they do, often they did a 180, and they eventually become more segregationist than the establishments that they were fighting with. And there is something to be concerned about in terms of country music's long-term association with segregation. It's hard, and especially you look at, you know, who's the leading figure by the 1960s politically. It's, it's George Wallace, who also is the politician most nationally known at that time for using country music and using big shot Opry stars to prop up his campaigns. That's also part of the legacy. And do the record labels that were involved with these various artists, does the Opry itself have an obligation to make some sort of apology for this long history? You know, even the people like Jimmy Davis, who kind of ran for Louisiana as governor as kind of a reform candidate opposing the long, the Huey Long machine. And yet when he runs again for governor in the 60s, he's really quite conservative and really propping up segregation in the state. Pappy O'Daniel, who ran this kind of populist campaign in Texas. If you've seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, you see kind of a popular popularization of his image. In the 50s, he tried to get back into politics again. You know, he had served as governor and then eventually as a U.S. senator. He ran um, in the 50s on a very white, a very right wing, well, I guess I could say white, <laughs> very kind of uh, conspiracy mongering sort of campaign by that point. So, you know, I mean, it does make sense that people would have this sort of uh, uh, preconception of the genre. Well, the wildest example of a politician doing that 180 degree turn you talk about would be the guy that opens your book, right? Tom Watson, who um, was this late 19th century fiddler politician you talk about who started out working with the Colored Farmers Alliance to advocate for black enfranchisement, condemned lynching. And then, like, circa 1900 became this racist anti-Semite with anti-Catholic conspiracy theories. Which raises a dumb, maybe naive question. (laughs) But, like, do you think there's something inherent to country music, maybe to do with its mixed racial roots in the South or its working class populist origins that, that makes it so flexible to all of these different political uses in a way that other kinds of music might not be? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think that, and, and I don't want to necessarily speak for the other genres, because I think that there is probably, if we really sit down and looked at the histories, we're going to see some complexity as well. But, I mean, I, I like to use the metaphor. I think it's haunted by the ghost of Tom Watson. <laughs> we're getting a little closer here to Halloween, and you can think of that. But from the very beginning, there is an impulse that can be very egalitarian and can move us, you know, as the young Tom Watson tried to do towards a society that's more inclusive. But, you know, at the same time, there are elements of it that can speak to a kind of um, a mistrust of that kind of world as well. And I think that's, you know, part of the Tom Watson story. And then you also have the potential of using the outsider status to then Uh, just because outsider status itself is kind of a minority viewpoint to start using it to uh, scapegoat other outsiders. 
there's always that potential there in the music. And I think in, when, not so much in the music, but when the music gets connected with politics. So beyond the beliefs of individual figures like Tom Watson, are there any other kinds of big shifts you could point to in country music politics more broadly? I mean, one thing I find interesting is if I was going to find a central issue that country music politicians, and I use that term broadly, both the ones that were performers or did perform themselves on the trail or the ones that really closely associated themselves with country music people like Big Jim Folson or, or, or George Wallace, um, a central issue originally was pensions, right? Getting, uh, you know, payments for, um, for elderly folks, getting, you know, making sure that we're taking care of those folks. And, you know, by the 90s and into the, the 2000s, um, you know, the lobbying group that's probably uh, most successful at, at getting candidates to support it and its message is the NRA. There's this, this thing called NRA country. And, you know, how do we shift from old age pensions, essentially Social Security, to Second Amendment rights? Is there also a change in how country music was being used originally in politics in the 19th century to how it's being used today? If you're a politician running on a campaign and you're appealing to a country music star or using country music, is there a difference for you doing that in 1865 versus 1965 versus like 2019? Oh, definitely. I think, you know, one of the big the big and really kind of untold stories here is how the technology helped over time help shape the kinds of messages that the politicians were getting out and the ways in which they were using the music. So, you know, the earliest figures in the uh, 1880s, 1890s, I mentioned the Tennessee politicians, they were brothers, Bob and Elf Taylor, and then uh, Tom Watson a little bit later um, in Georgia. You know, essentially, they were fiddling on the campaign trail in rural districts and you know, just trying to use the music to drum up interest or support. Sometimes they used it after they gave their talk to keep the voters around and keep them happy. <laughs> Mischievous things that they would do to try to, to dr- try to get young men, they would get all their lady friends to turn out to dance. And, uh, you know, it was a way of kind of attracting young male voters <laughs> to their side. Um, and then, you know, I think as the age of, for instance, radio starts, especially by the, the 20s and 30s, it really changes the political landscape in some ways, because now you have the beginnings of bona fide stars and country music, radio star politicians, people like Jimmy Davis, Roy Acuff, who ran unsuccessfully for uh, governor of Tennessee, Pappy O'Daniel, who really wasn't a musician, but more of a promoter and, 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 and also a songwriter. And he used his radio voice um, in a lot of ways to reach people who were unreachable. And, you know, a lot of times people, historians will talk about the early 30s as the beginning of the age of the loudspeaker playing a dominant role in, in politics. And, and often people will point to Europe and the way the Nazis used the loudspeaker to attract large crowds. But Earlier than them, there were people like Huey Long. And I think you can look at television. That certainly has an impact. And so, you know, and that maybe helps mainstream it. You know, by the 60s, you know, you have one perennial presidential candidate who is usually a third-party candidate. That's George C. Wallace, the segregationist governor from Alabama. 
using a lot of country music to reach voters, including on radio, you know, radio programs and things like that. And even having uh, one supporter put out a whole album of songs supporting him. And eventually by the 70s, you know, Nixon is having one of his uh, central campaign songs, Nixon Now, recorded by the Mike Curb Congregation, which was a uh, vocal group that also used kind of steel guitar country style backing in the in the actual production of the song. And you know, today I think it's it's social media, it's Twitter, it's 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 Facebook, it's the way that candidates try to reach potential voters. What's interesting is it's hard to think of a recent mainstream party nomination presidential campaign where they aren't using country music, at least in some way or another, either just as entertainment while they're waiting for the candidate to speak or to highlight certain elements of their campaign. Well, aren't they just using any kind of music, any kind of like popular performer? What does using a country star versus a rock or a hip hop star really mean when it's all popular music? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I think, you know, that you're right, that it that there is a lot of mixing and matching of different kinds of performers and candidates. I do think that they are still kind of using it maybe in the same ways that the folks back in the 1880s were. The country music endorsements become important sometimes because they signal a kind of authenticity that, that I'm just one of the folks I'm, I'm just, you know, I can connect with average people to a certain type of voter. And, you know, may, maybe hip hop does the same thing to a certain type of voter. So there's there, maybe there's a little bit of market segregation there going on. I hope I answered that question. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it yeah. seems like, as you say, there was a period where country music was just used as entertainment before or after these political rallies. But then in the decades after, it came to symbolize this kind of outsider authenticity that we've been talking about. I mean, maybe this was there all along, that sentiment of, I'm not with the establishment. I'm just a working man like you. Whereas now, if a mainstream politician gets the endorsement of a mainstream mega-rich super country star like Keith Urban or Carrie Underwood, I'm not sure you could make the argument that they're outsiders living normal working man lives. It seems almost like a betrayal of that outsider status. That's that's a good point. I think it's still, though, it's still kind of used to signal that, you know, I am just one of the boys. I am just one of the average people here sort of thing. Even if you're right, it's betraying some of that original sentiment. I think one of the, the central like take-home things that, that come out here is that this whole mess of celebrity and politics and entertainment that modern day pundits and, and journalists will talk on and on and on about, um, it's not necessarily new. I mean, that's what's kind of interesting about the country music figures. There were so many of them, either country musicians who ran for office or non-performer politicians who... Um, you know, used country music as central parts of their campaigns. And they were pioneering this this whole celebrity and politics things well before Ronald Reagan, well before Donald Trump. You know, I thought about in 2016, I kept having this feeling of deja vu because there would be, you know, something very um, outrageous would happen and the, the political um, pundits 
would go on the air and talk about how we've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> and I would sit there and, and kind of chuckle to myself, maybe in a, maybe not a, necessarily a happy way, but yeah, I've seen this before. <laughs> this idea that, you know, we need to drain the swamp, for instance. The person who really did that originally was Big Jim Folsom. You know, he came out and with a bucket and, and sometimes a corn chuck mop. And, you know, if you go online, you can see what that looks like. It's, it's a home-produced mop using corn husks. And he would go out and shout about how he was going to, you know, after his band, the Strawberry Pickers, had played several, several songs, he would shout about how he was going to clean up the Capitol and bring it back to the people, right? And especially, you know, he would talk about the branch heads, these rural areas that he felt were neglected. And he wanted to bring roads in. He wanted to use state money in a much more effective way than he thought, you know, the political establishment was using it. And it's not necessarily new, it's different. And I think we're in one of those periods of time when when I can see some analogy between today and the past. I don't ever want to say history repeats itself. No historian will do that. But I can see that we're in a period when new media are changing the way politics functions. And smart politicians will realize that and take advantage of it. There are many things to link to and say about country music, but I'll start by telling you to check out Peter LaChapelle's new book, I'd Fight the World. There are so many more examples of the ways that politicians have used country music and its stars to their own ends, whether subtle, brazen, or absolutely tawdry, and you'll just have to read the book to learn about the rest. I'll also throw in some links to work that talks about the relationship between Black people and country music, as well as my favorite country music podcast, Cocaine and Rhinestones, best title ever, and some different takes on the Lil Nas controversy. And of course, the full cinematic event that is the official music video for that song, Old Town Road, because it is just so smart and fun. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and listen to some country music. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.